This is Academes, a podcast about women in academia, living the dream, or are we? Sarah. Hey, Whitney. I am here with you to talk about today's episode with Dr. Rena Pasek. Um, this is a really interesting episode because it didn't go the way we expected. So this season we've been experimenting with doing guest lecture style things where we talk to people about topics that they specialize in. And so we decided to talk to Dr. Rena about intersectionality and um, allyship. Um, and then Dr. Rita took our conversation in a really different direction. <laughs> um, she talked about friendship and making friendships across barriers of race and nationality, which is a lot of what her work is about. And so it just wasn't what we expected because we're all a little bit type A academics. And so, <laughs> but we sat with it, which I think is something that I'm prone to do. And um, during that time we sat with it, I began to think that maybe Dr. Rena was right and I was wrong. Maybe like this whole thing is about friendship. And also there was a pandemic. <laughs> so yeah, like a lot's changed since we recorded this because we did record it a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we all felt really strongly about releasing the episode, you, me, and Mara. And I think I got extra insight when I was listening to this episode of Death, Sex, and Money and Code Switch, where they had a crossover. Mm -hmm. And it was all about, I think it was all about cross-racial friendships Mm -hmm. and how hard they are. Have you, you've listened listened. to these shows. I have, yep. Yeah. What did you think about the episodes? Oh, wow. Um, I thought they were incredibly provocative in a way that I had not seen before. I mean, in the way that podcasts can go dig a little bit deeper than a lot of other media can. Yeah, I'd recommend the episodes. I hope people listen to them. Mm-hmm. But one thing that stood out to me was a discussion with, I think, a black psychologist, we should look at up her name, who caters to women of color in her practice and says that most of what she discusses with her clients is the workplace. And it like rang a bell for me because I realized that the majority of my time in psychotherapy is about work dynamics and relationships um, and just navigating my relationships in a very, very white research university. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've always been in those kind of settings. Like I went to undergrad at Harvard and I did a postdoc at Michigan and my current institution. And I've never really questioned it much. I just kind of adapt to the setting and kind of, you know, come up with my mechanisms of kind of separating my work and personal life and moving Mm -hmm. forward and, you know, being, you know, twice as good, which is this trope. Um, And talking to Dr. Rena, she was like, no, like I can think of a totally like radical um, way to do it differently, a radical reimagining of the workplace. Like what if you became deeply invested in like deep relationships with people and the people became deeply invested in relationship with you. And she talks about as a white woman, how she did that um, with the community she works with and also with her colleagues. And it was just provocative to think about another way of being and doing this thing. Um, Mm. So I don't know. It's different. It's not what we imagined. Um, But I think it's compelling in personal ways for me. And I think it's even more compelling in our current context because it's um, March 22nd when we're recording a Sunday night. And um, the COVID pandemic is really ramping up in the U.S. It is The cases are multiplying. It's hitting. And it's making me think about what I value in life and the quality of the relationships I value and living in a wholehearted way, like Brene Brown says. And I think Dr. Rena Pasek lives in a wholehearted way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is like comfort food. Maybe you all will love listening to it, even if it's not what you expect. Maybe it's still what you need to hear. (laughs) 
No, I mean, your point about this being well-timed in the context of the pandemic is, I mean, I am sure that your relationships are changing the way everybody's relationships are changing. And in some ways, I think the way that Rena approaches relationships is the way that people are kind of waking up to have relationships in richer ways because we have to be more um, intentional about our relationships than we have been previously. And that's what it yeah. sounds like she's all about is intention. Mm-hmm. I would say that is a really good kind of summary. I think intention and vulnerability mm-hmm. and showing up. Yeah, which is not a bad way to live. Not at all. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. I hope everybody enjoys this episode. Dr. Rena Pasek, welcome back to Academes. It's great to be back. I'm really excited to have a return visit here. (laughs) You are an audience favorite, so we are excited to have you. This um, interview actually started as a journal club where me and Sarah usually talk to each other about a topic that interests us. But we thought that the topic we're going to talk about was so important that we wanted to talk to somebody who had more expertise than us. We had originally called this allyship. And broadly, we just wanted to talk about how to be a good ally. And we will dissect the word ally. That'll be one of the things that we talk about. Um, But no matter how I define it, you are a person that I did think about as a person who has lived out principles to support others from marginalized populations in the academy. Um, And I also thought I would talk to you because specifically because you're a white woman. And you've done a lot of thinking about kind of issues of partnering with and supporting academic researchers and research that comes out of marginalized communities. And I actually think sometimes one of the most uncomfortable relationships that I see in some academic spaces is between white women and women of color, because we often think about ourselves as allies. And in many times we are, but sometimes there is more friction than I think people want to acknowledge. And so I'd be interested to hear your experiences about that. But first, I thought I would start with some definitions that I found of the term ally and allyship and kind of see what you think. So one I found is from the Anti-Oppression Network, um, who also credited the PeerNet BC, which is a not-for-profit in British Columbia. And they say that allyship is an active, consistent, and arduous practice of unlearning and reevaluating in which a person in a position of privilege and power seeks to operate in solidarity with a marginalized group. They say that allyship is not an identity. It is a process of building relationships based on trust, consistency, and accountability with marginalized individuals. And it's not self-defined. It must be recognized by the people we seek to ally ourselves with. And there's a lot more, but that's kind of the organizing principle. And so first, I just wanted to know what you think of the term allyship. Is it something you've heard? Does it resonate? Does it not? Um, I have certainly heard of it. And I'm always a little uh, wary of, quote, terms. Um, especially when they become buzzwords and take on important meanings that may differ. But I really like the definition that you just stated. Because you did express that you were nervous and you wanted to think about what you would say. And why do you think you feel trepidation about talking about this? Well, uh, because even though I have navigated very, very successfully in, in diverse communities, I am also capable of just stepping in it big time. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that all by itself, I think that it, it terrifies a lot of people who are, mm-hmm. who, who are sensitive to the fact that it can happen. And it's happened to me more than one occasion. (laughs) 
in the ideal circumstance, you can, you know, when you have a trusting relationship, you can talk it through and, and hear, okay, that hurt me or that was offensive and mm -hmm. why did you say that and so forth. So um, I've experienced it both ways. I'm Jewish, and mm -hmm. so I have sat in a room next to a dear, dear colleague that I've worked really close with for a long time, and he made some comment I've managed to block out whatever <laughs> the word was or the term that he used, and I just said, this was in the middle of a meeting, and I just said, what did you say? Mm. <laughs> and, and we had a little discussion about it right there. But I understood where that came from, and it was good that we talked about it. There's a foundation that has to be there of having some sensitivity and understanding of what other people experience. And that has to be combined with respect and trust where you can talk about these things. So that's why I ultimately did want to do this interview. But also the fact that it can be edited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we should all have some trepidation when we engage where there are issues of difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just being as respectful as we possibly can goes a long way. But, but you can still mess up mm -hmm. and because we, we don't walk in each other's shoes. Okay. Thank you for so sharing So that's a long-winded answer for why I felt trepidation. <laughs> <laughs> well, could I ask you, what is your worst-case scenario? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, um, I don't expect any worst-case scenarios. Okay. So let's not even go there. We won't even go there. <laughs> I know you said that, you know, you don't want to necessarily talk about how other people should be and talk prescriptively, but you do feel comfortable talking about your own experiences and reflect on what's worked and the things you've learned along the way. Yes, and I will say also that my own experiences were so, I feel slow to develop and have meaning. Um that it discourages me in some ways about people being able to build bridges of trust. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what that means is that I, I get and I know that it's uh, familiarity breeds trust and respect, not content. Mm -hmm. People need to know each other um, in order to, to begin to let down their biases. Uh, some of the clearest examples have been, for me, among friends and others who were homophobic. But then, mm -hmm. guess what? Their own kid comes out. Oh, mm -hmm. well, that's different. Um, oh, this is like a real human being who's... <laughs> Is important and has worth. Mm. So, um, it, familiarity is so important, and I. But it's a long, slow process, and um, it requires a lot of key aspects to come together to to really make for. I'm not even going to say allyship. I'm going to mm -hmm. say friendship. Hmm. Because the people that I work with um, who might refer to me as an ally are also my friends. Mm -hmm. We've become friends and all that that implies. So that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen from listening to a podcast. But mm -hmm. I do think that we can be more attentive to some of the things that that I notice. I think I'd like to start with with a quandary that I've struggled with because early in my research career, I had the opportunity to see the 
difference between what I call insider and outsider researchers. The insider researcher is from is someone from a community that is marginalized and experiencing inequities and health disparities. And the outsider is, you know, Susie Whiteness who comes along and uh, wants to do something to help is really, you know, a very public health and social justice minded person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly there's a lot that that person can offer. But it does not compare, in my experience, to what the insider researcher uh, can do. And so that, that realization, which came over several years of observing insider and outsider and being an outsider researcher, <clears throat> that that period of time really drew me to believe in the importance of the insider researcher. And that's what caused me to start the diversity training program called the Minority Training Program in Cancer Control Research, which is intended, as you very well know, having participated, to... Mm-hmm. Um, elevate and encourage people of color to obtain doctoral degrees and become leaders. There's a passage that I read every time we opened our summer institute, and it's from uh, the book The Razor's Edge by Somerset Mom. And I would like to just read it. It's Mm -hmm. a few sentences. It is very difficult to know people, and I don't think one can really know any but one's own countrymen. For men and women are not only themselves, they are also the region in which they were born, the city, apartment, or the farm on which they learned to walk, the games they played as children, the old wives' tales they overheard, the food they ate, the schools they attended, the sports they followed, the poets they read, and the God they believed in. It is all these things that have made them what they are, and these are things you can't come to know by hearsay. You can only know them if you have lived them. You can only know them if you are them. And so those words became my credo. The biggest contribution I felt I could make in terms of health disparities was to help put the people experiencing those disparities in the driver's seat because they are the only ones who really know how to relate and everything um, that that entails when it comes to doing research in communities, for communities, and with communities. You said that it was kind of a process to come to that. What do you think, like, why do you think you came to this? My first 10 years of of my research career, which spanned the mid-80s to uh, mid-90s, was a time when Uh, we were really just starting to understand a lot about disparities and the issues around diversity in the research uh, context and Mm -hmm. in academia. And fortunately, being in in San Francisco, we did have a diverse research team. And I could just see, you know, it was was very eye-opening to me. I mean, (laughs) You know, how words in one language just meant something different Mm. in another language. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And then one of the biggest, biggest things that that one hurdle for me was understanding indirect communication, which Mm. is just, you know, I'm a European, Western, say what you mean, mean what you say, put all your meaning into your words and just the insights that I constantly saw 
and the questions that people would ask that I could never dream of. You know, it all was this big sort of slow awakening Hmm. that, okay, these are the people who need to really be doing the research. But the, the quandary for me came, the big, the even bigger quandary came years later as I started to see that, oh gosh, there is a role for me hmm. uh, and people like me. Because as much as I had put all my eggs into the basket of increasing diversity and you know having others lead the work, I realized that there are words that I could utter mm-hmm. that had a different meaning when they came from me in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So I'll give an example. Um, I was I ha- was asked to speak to a huge annual gathering of um, um, uh, Susan G. Komen local affiliates, their annual meeting. So people were there from all over the country, and overwhelmingly they were white. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and I was given ten minutes to say, "How do you work effectively in the black community?" <laughs> 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 and I thought, okay, I can just say no; that's <laughs> not possible, or I can try to actually do something. That, that might be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what can that possibly be? Well, I decided just to say it like I see it. And I said, the first thing I want to say is that if you want to be effective in the, in the African-American community, you need to understand the long shadow of slavery. Even though you might think it's ancient history, it is not. It plays out today in daily lives all the time. And I led with that. Now, at the end, I there were about a half dozen uh, black women in the crowd, and they just crowded around me and were so glad that I said that. And I was Mm -hmm. terrified of saying it, but I thought, this is how I need to express myself. And damn it, you only gave me a short time, so I'm going to say what I think you need to hear. Mm -hmm. And and I think that if an African-American person had said that, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have been quite the same thing. And so that day, I'll just, I'll never forget anything about that day. It, it, was, it was very eye-opening that, okay, I do have a role here. Mm-hmm. I, and I was vigilant, though. I was clear that I have to be careful about how I try to shape and, and use that. Uh, but, hey, okay, maybe... Maybe this is something I can and should be doing. But again, it took me a long time. And I'm going to emphasize black and white because mm-hmm. that is what I've, I've mostly been doing the past 10 years. And in the early days of my working in this community, my place was to sit back and listen and learn and try mm-hmm. to understand and I have a lot of colleagues who, they don't consciously think this, but, but it seems to be a, a subconscious driving factor that their, their skills and their training give them some superiority. Mm-hmm. And I see it uh, the opposite. I start out, it started out in the community realizing that I didn't know which end was up. Mm. And so I had to try to understand. And what really made a difference early, early, early on were two mentors, um, African-American women 
little older than me, each in us related but different circumstances in which I came to know them, but, but definitely work-related, who we became close and they started sharing with me how they see the world. Hmm. And that's the part that makes me discouraged. Hmm. Discouraged that I, this was a rare opportunity. These two women just opened the door and let me in and would say things to me about other white people <laughs> that, that they found ridiculous or offensive or whatever. And, and so I, I was given the, the playbook. <laughs> Not that I know it front and back, of course I don't, but it sure was eye-opening and it, it made me realize I have to listen, I have to watch, and that I don't have the answers. You talk about so, that as yeah, being unusual and them being generous, which it sounds like there were, and you being lucky, but I bet there was something in the way you responded that made them feel like they could be honest with you. Uh, it, that must have been the case, but I honestly don't know what it is. I, I don't understand it myself. I mean, I was raised in a very insular community and mm -hmm. an insular family, and I was, you know, a lot of people were raised differently, and, and I see them, uh, you know, they, they come into situations much better prepared than I certainly was. But something, I don't know, it's, yeah. still, a, it's still a mystery to me. But I wonder if being raised in an insular community and family gave you that experience early on of knowing what it's like to be an outsider and not being accepted as part of the mainstream that maybe made you more yeah. open to that idea? Yes, yes, possibly. Um, but of course, that's, that's, it's, oh, well, that, that's a whole other. <laughs> but through the listening, the really listening, like, literally sitting in the back of the room while uh, and making it possible for others to make the decisions. And this was the case mm -hmm. the, when the Community Advisory Board established a Faith Communities Committee. I was really out of my league there. So then these were incredible community leaders who influential people brought to the table. And my new credo at that time was when you bring people of substance to the table, you have to be prepared to follow their lead. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. They designed our program. It's fantastic. It's been successful for 12 years. Um, and I was the intermediary. I was the support person. Another story that I'd like to share. I was going to talk about prostate cancer to a small group of African Americans. And I stepped up to speak and I looked out and I saw polite, politeness, mm -hmm. but utter boredom. <laughs> I really opened my mouth. It was like, okay, here comes another one of those university people. and. They're going to talk and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, well, <laughs> this isn't good. <laughs> I need to do something to, because I knew I wasn't there because of my job description. I was there because of a passion that I have. And so I decided to start with my story. And my mm. story was losing mo both my parents to cancer by the time I was 20. Mm -hmm. Well, I saw a visible atmospheric change in the room. Mm. People suddenly could relate to me as a human being. But I mean, it was palpable, it was visible, mm -hmm. and it, it, it allowed me to be heard. And 
it actually, you know, when I look back now, I see it was about what I came to understand as relational culture, um, which is being personal, 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 hmm. relating to people. That was articulated by a couple respondents in one of my studies. One person said, the quality of the relationship is more important than the credibility of the information. Hmm. Well, that, that never would have occurred to me. (laughs) I'm like, give me science or give me death. (laughs) Another way that an African-American anthropologist once put it this way, she said, I don't know you, so I can't hear you. Hmm. And that just, right there, summed up, and I have to find ways whenever I speak to people who don't know me, I have to, I have to try to let them know me, and I have to know them. I think that's, understanding that is a key element of allyship. Hmm. Knowing that you don't hold the answers, and that people need to relate to one another on a human level. Now when I tell my story to a new audience in a church setting or an African-American community setting, I show a picture of my parents and me Hmm. from the 1950s. And I, I use a biblical passage. I say, I was a stranger and you invited me in. That's from Matthew 2535. And I put that passage up on. And so those two things, back to back, I, I now have an audience who we are, we are one. And uh, we're trying to communicate with one another. And so that that combined with the experience that I had in the um, Susan G. Komen meeting led me to start being more raw hmm. and real. That's another thing that is so important when academics are working in the community. Just talk in plain language, understand Mm. the words and the meanings. Listen to understand the words and the meanings that people have. And that breaks down enormous barriers. I was thinking about, you know, just talking in plain English and also going into the church and quoting scripture and it was so meaningful but I think from somebody else it could come across as inauthentic and cheesy oh exactly oh yes yes Yes. that's the part about reflecting on yourself can is it something that is within you that you are going to release in a in an appropriate way or are you just trying to put on that garment when it really doesn't fit you. That is so important to recognize. And actually, you know what? I've never articulated it the way I did just this minute. (laughs) You know, people, are you compassionate? Are you able to open yourself in a genuine, authentic way? If you are not, do not try this at all. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's good advice. We want to hear from you. What do you think of this episode? Tell us about your experience as an academe. You can reach us on Twitter at academespodcast, by email at academespodcast at gmail.com, or please leave us a voicemail at 919-666-7301. And if you like what you hear, rate us on your favorite podcast app. It'll help people find us. But you need to, 
to, to gauge what you can actually say and do. Some people read faces really well mm -hmm. and others don't. Yeah. So that's another part of self-reflection. Can, can you see how your interaction is going? And if people are backing off or if they're coming closer. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. That's some really interesting. Are... Yeah, some people can't read the room. Sometimes, you know, you're, you're like, yeah. this person is not reading the room. And that happens in all kinds of circumstances. And I don't know, maybe they're just not paying attention or they don't have people who are honest with them. Well, I know that there are conditions. There are yeah. like uh, brain uh, disorders that for people who can't read cues on mm -hmm. faces and so forth. And then there is a whole set of degrees of, of capability in that regard. People need to think about themselves mm -hmm. and not just jump into places where the role for them may be something different. I haven't trained in this at all, but I know that like one of the things is sometimes a solution to bias in you know settings, healthcare settings or academic settings is to give everybody implicit bias training. And sometimes I'm skeptical, sometimes because of the quality of the training. I think there are people who do these kind of trainings in person and in a really in-depth experiential way, and they can be powerful to people. But a lot of the trainings that are widely disseminated are just like, you know, a computer program or something. Um, and also I think there's some people where I think even with the training, they still have the potential to do more damage than good. And I just kind of want to be like, just keep those people away from other people. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, it, uh, I wish we could have a set of check boxes that, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're in, you're out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't work that way, but I've seen I've seen the the bad and the ugly just right before my eyes, you know, people talking over people, people thinking, "Oh, you know, I can't I can't work in that environment because they don't understand the importance of the study design." Uh, you know, it's like, "Okay, goodbye." Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's like it's like physicians. There are some people who really uh, bring empathy and caring. Yeah. I, you know, if I had to summarize it in one word, it would be caring. Mm -hmm. People know when you care and when you don't care. Yeah. And caring resonates and goes a very, very long way. Yeah. And again, I think it's more a matter of of self-reflection, being honest with oneself. Can I, can I, how much do I care? Why do I care? And can I show that I care? It's, it's, it's just a human, uh, it's a feeling. And we, and in academia, we don't want to hear much about feelings. But it's so uh, interesting because academic spaces tend to be thought of as politically progressive and inclusive and all about diversity. But, you know, you're pointing to the fact that often they're not about caring and thinking about how to be inclusive and responsive to people and respect the knowledge that people have. But I think that sometimes there are people who can even do damage to their colleagues and in mentoring. I hear a lot of students mm, from marginalized yes, backgrounds yeah. talk about the experience of being in school or being trainees or even postdocs or faculty and feeling like those spaces can be hostile towards them when they're even just trying to do research. Yes, yes, that is so true. That is, that is one of the great sorrows that I've experienced, um, seeing people that I've helped move, you know, take courageous steps forward, and then be, be smashed to bits by, mm. by people who think they're doing good, want to do good, but don't have that capability. And 
So that, oh wow, it, it takes, it takes a really thick skin, which I'm, of course, not everybody has. Mm -hmm. And it also takes seeking out the right mentors and not everybody has the luxury to do that. Mm -hmm. So um, I really like hand-me-down mentors, you know, where people have a good experience <laughs> and they let others know <laughs> seriously. And it's true for institutions. Some yeah. institutions are much more welcoming than others and much more supportive. And people need to not just jump at wherever they're accepted or wherever they're offered a job, mm -hmm. but, you know, to really try to do do. do diligence uh, and find out, is this a place that will be supportive of me? Mm -hmm. And is there any advice you would give to senior people, like somebody who is doing mentoring or who might even be a division leader or chair or something, who might be saying, I don't want to be the person who's doing harm, but I'm not sure how helpful I am. If they look in themselves and they say, this is not my forte, like I don't really seem to be connecting in a strong way. How do I help from just doing harm? One of the things that, that comes to mind is uh, asking, asking mentees. Mm. <laughs> you know? uh, is there something, I mean, is there something I can do better? But that's only possible where you already, you know, yeah. the person isn't going to speak up unless you already have a some kind of degree of trust yeah uh so i'm sorry i i don't know the answer to that but i <laughs> think okay. people should people should think about it at yeah. the very least people should understand that it is not just a matter of spending time with someone uh helping them improve their writing skills mm -hmm. There's a human being there who is maybe being smacked down by mm -hmm. you inadvertently. And it's back to understanding the, the world that people are in and how, how words you use may be offensive and hurtful and ideas that you express. And I'm sure, I know I've done that actually. Mm -hmm. uh, long ago, I'll never forget this man. Uh, I, was, I was mentoring someone and he, he got a grant funded, a small grant funded, which I didn't think was very good. And I was surprised and I said, Oh, that was really lucky. Oh. <laughs> he, I mean, that one word. Yeah. Just. Yeah. He told me a long time later. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've never forgotten it. You know, that was awful that I said that. He had yeah. poured his heart and soul into that grant. And I told him he was lucky. See, mm -hmm. that's, that's the sort of thing that I really... I scare myself, yeah. and I am afraid. I don't ever want to do that to someone. And at least I know that I'm capable of it, and so I'm, I'm vigilant about it. Uh, so, but, you know, I never would have, at that time, I assure you, I've never done that since or anything like it. But he <laughs> but, did. Um, I mean, he did. You he kind told of, me. He told you. He did when I no longer had power over him is yeah. when he told me. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you, know, you power, power, yeah, <laughs> power is, is a real uh, wet blanket. <laughs> I think there's of, people who have power who are very resistant to like owning it. They, and it can be very frustrating when they don't want to acknowledge the fact that they have power over you and that they're exercising power over you. And it's like a little crazy making. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mm -hmm. mean, that's actually a good way to 
break into the conversation is to say mentors and mentees are there's a power differential Mm -hmm. and I don't want that to drive our relationship so let's work on how we can how we can acknowledge that and uh, minimize the effects or something like that it's the whole thing of standing up and saying talking about the long shadow of slavery yeah. <laughs> you know say it like it is yeah and and try to talk about it um you um earlier you apologized when i was asking another question you said oh i don't have an answer but you kind of do have an answer about maybe saying to somebody how can i be a better mentor and while acknowledging that you won't get honest answers the first time you ask that necessarily i think asking it itself is in a way of opening Mm -hmm. a door to let the person know Mm -hmm. oh maybe they are interested in improving and i think what people tend to do is maybe test it so somebody says oh i want feedback and so yeah the way that you react when you get feedback is super important because there have been people that I've told something to or given feedback to that wasn't, I didn't think it was a huge deal and they reacted very defensively. And so that really closes the door or even sometimes lashing out because people take things personally. And so it just closes that opportunity for honesty, real honesty in relationship. It kind of gets back to caring. Um, if you really care about being a good mentor and and being open and honest, that's going to come through. If you're just mouthing some words that you think need to be said, that's going to come through too. Yeah. I like what you said also about listening. Like I've had instances where I've told like a white colleague or something, something that another colleague, white colleague did or said um, that was like a little offensive and they will even respond defensively on the other person's behalf. Oh, you like you misunderstood. Oh, she's not like that. Or, you know, things like that. And mm. that just really, it's like, okay, I'm standing here in front of you. You weren't even there. And you're telling me my experience was wrong. And, you know, it really, it, it, I mean, it, it really does preclude the relationship building. Right, right. And it's because the the person who is denying your your feelings doesn't understand that you might see things in a different way that yeah. certain words hit you differently because of who you are and what you're you know what what you've experienced and there's got to be room for that <laughs> if there isn't then yeah the door is closed yeah and also just that people are complicated and that there can be somebody who's really good to you, but who might be kind of not good to another person from a marginalized community. And I think just that human beings are complex and they can be both good and bad at different times to different mm-hmm. people. And that doesn't mean they're terrible and it doesn't mean they haven't done good things but I feel like sometimes people are uncomfortable with that complexity and they want people to be all good or all bad and so they deny the experiences that don't fit with their understanding of a person or of themselves at the beginning you said you felt a little bit discouraged because you felt like it took a lot of time and energy to do the relationship building you did and to get to the place that you got to where people do trust you and consider you a friend. I mean, what would you say to people who would like that? Like people who are coming up now, you were coming up in the late seventies, early eighties, people who are coming up right now, starting their careers or starting school. Do you feel hopeful for them or do you have any advice for them? Well, I do feel hopeful for them because I think that we're in a, a different time now. I know we're in a different time now. <laughs> and the, these issues are really coming to the fore. I mean, they're, they're undeniable. And I, I see young people as being more, and maybe I, it's the bubble that I live in, but I see 
much more um, openness and sensitivity mm -hmm. to others on the part of a lot of young people. It's, it's the older generations that are just going to have to die off. And unfortunately, older generations are passing it on to their children, mm -hmm. too. That's one thing I really thank my parents, that they didn't pass on to me uh, some of the things that I later in life came to realize, you know, were their, were their ways of thinking. But mm. um, I, I do feel more hopeful. Well, especially as there is more diversity in places where it didn't exist. I mean, that fact alone, because again, being among people is to realize that they're human, you know, just like you, and that humans are more similar than they are different. Uh, and so as our country diversifies, it's going to go through uh, you know, this, these periods of, of resistance, mm -hmm. paroxysms of, of hatred and resistance are, are horrible, but from it, I believe, will spring more harmony uh, across people who come from different places. I have to believe that. I'm sitting here looking at pictures of some of my beloved friends and colleagues that, that surround my desk. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm just grateful. I am overwhelmed by gratitude that mm -hmm. whatever the powers of the universe have been that allowed me to forge these meaningful relationships, uh, I... I hope in some way I can pass on that capability to others. And this helps, Whitney. Yeah. That's why I wanted to, finally wanted to do this because uh, this is one way. I think that to is pass a, that along. It's a good happy note. <laughs> Thank you for talking to us. Is there anything else you wanted to say? I think I gave you an earful. <laughs> <laughs> Academes was produced by Mara Bookbinder, Whitney Robinson, and me, Sarah Birkin. Our editors include Jeremiah Murphy and Molly Horrock. We get administrative support from Val Hooker and Molly Horrock. Our artwork is by Melissa Hudgens at Leafy Greens Design. We have received funding from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hills, Carolina Women's Center, and the Wisdom Initiative.